Um, I would like to welcome you all to the second week of Drisha's Winter's Mon and the first of two classes called Tasting the Tanakh on the Role of Food in Biblical Narratives by Rabbi Joe Wolfson. Um, Rabbi Joe Wolfson grew up in London and spent 10 years studying, working, and loving life in Israel. He studied at Yeshivat Haaretzion and Beit Marasha, through which he received his smicha from the Israeli chief rabbinate. He thought he was going into politics and did degrees at Cambridge, where he was president of the Jewish Society and UCL. He decided to go into Jewish education and has taught texts on four continents, primarily as a faculty member of London School of Jewish Studies. Beyond music, good books, cycling, and HBO, Rabbi Joe is passionate about the ways in which texts link up to larger issues of Jewish identity. He has worked in areas as diverse as Israeli-Palestinian conflict, religious secular relations in Israel, and European Jewish communities. And without further ado, Rabbi Joe Wolfson. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me, everybody. Um, very excited to learn with everybody. Realize that my bio is quite a while out of date. I should have uh, asked Shlomo Zukia before he said, should we just use the old bio to see what it was? Um, that, that was correct as of about 2015. Um, <laughs> so a few things have happened in the last um, last five years. Um, primarily, um, we live in downtown Manhattan. Uh, my wife and I are the JLIC couple and directors at New York University. So everything to do with uh, downtown Jewish Manhattan is uh, what I've been very much concerned with in the last few years. And um, I've done some wonderful teaching at Drisha. Drisha back uh, uh, in the world when we could do things in person would have its summer uh, Kolel at the Bronfman Center where we work and it was a privilege to teach as part of that and um, perhaps uh, most significantly and relevantly for this um, we love food um, very much um, whilst I was studying for Smicha for my uh, rabbinic coordination my wife Kareen was training at Tadmor which is Israel's main culinary um, Institute and she worked as a chef for several years and it was a shared thing, uh, shared love as well. Um, so very excited to be a part of this. Like Sarah said, um, if you are happy and able to put your screens on, that would be wonderful. Uh, learning online is much more uh, satisfying and I, I find it much uh, much easier when we're able to still feel we've got something of a, um, a group a group connection. And if there isn't noise in your background, you're also welcome to unmute yourselves as well, even if you haven't got anything to say. You know, from the perspective of uh, a teacher, you know, we uh, we we this is we want to pick up as on as much as possible. You know, if I say something and there's sort of like an intake of breath or a Marge Simpson style grumble, you know, that's that's a piece of data. That, uh, that I want and it helps me uh, respond to it as well. Um, so this is me coming in fresh. This is my first four minutes of uh, Drisha's winter zman. And I assume that the majority of you have uh, already um, spent a good amount of time in the last 10 days considering the uh, links between uh, Jewish texts and ideas and identity and food. So I consider you all much more equipped for this than I am. And I'm, I, I want to gain from your, from your knowledge and, and, and the like. 
Um, has there been, uh, I, I did listen to Rabbi Silber's uh, piece on, um, on Sunday. Apart from that, has there been much focusing on Tanakh itself, on uh, role and ideas of food in, in the Bible? Not a ton. There's been a lot on um, on more Talmud. Um, mm -hmm. All right, good. So we're going to be uh, we're going to be going back to basics then. Um, that will be that will be wonderful. Um, perhaps rather than going round at the start and everybody saying um, where you are and where you're from, I'd like to ask people to really be sort of involved. And whenever you do speak, please do introduce yourself and and say where, where you're from. So we've got two classes together, today and Thursday. And my idea is as follows. I thought we would uh, begin with, and I'm not sure if it will take up all of today or just a part of today. We would begin with sort of like an overview of um, just trying to think how many different ways um, or how many different roles food plays in Tanakh, in a whole variety of, um, of different places, of different sort of uh, um, significance, what sort of literary function it, it might have. And we're going to look at a, a good number of, of uh, sort of themes and ideas. And then I thought with the rest of today's class and Thursday, or perhaps uh, just Thursday, we're going to focus on two stories, two sort of deep dives, if you like, where Food is at the center of the narrative and understanding what its role is, is going to deeply um, enrich in our understanding of that story. So perhaps I'll open the, uh, the floor up to, to you all to begin thinking. When we run these two ideas together, say Tanakh, the Bible, which we love to read, which we love to live, and food, where are the meeting points between the two? And just, I guess what I should say, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking primarily, primarily of narrative. I'm not thinking for now of, say, korbanot, the sacrifices, which of course are food, which is very interesting, not our discussion for now. I'm not thinking of kashrut um, and tuma and tahara, rules, laws of food, which is permitted, forbidden, Pure, impure, that's not exactly where I want to go right now. Where, what are you thinking of the role that food plays in biblical stories? Let's just sort of throw some ideas out together and then we'll do some, some jumping in. Please don't be shy. I was thinking of the Omer, the wheat, growing mm. the wheat and counting the Omer. Do you want to expand a little bit on that, Enid? Well, it, it's food, and um, it's not it's not food you can eat in its form, but it shapes. It, it's a central point of the agricultural society because um, it needed to be guarded. Probably, it, the guarding started and had to do with the marauders around. Whereas the wheat got better and better, it was more likely to be stolen uh, mm -hmm. and hard. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, basically, that's what I was thinking. That's great. That's excellent. And I think it also um, 
gives us uh, a, an introduction into just a much larger theme, really a, a huge theme, which you're touching upon, which is that the Tanakh is primarily, for much of its uh, uh, narrative, an agrarian society. Agriculture and the production of food is at the heart of what is done, fundamentally different to the way in which most of us live today. So that's, that's the setting, and something like the Omer plays a big role in that. Yehudi, you have your hand raised. Yes. Um, I, I'm assuming you're talking about food and biblical narrative. So if that's the case, let's just start with Sefer Breshit. The first thing you hear about is a food story. You're allowed to eat this, but you're not allowed to eat that. And when you eat that, you get yourself into trouble. Hmm. And then we have stories of Avram Avinu sitting and lit, eating Malkitzedek slash Vayayin. And then we have the whole story of the big feast that uh, Yitzhak wants to have before he blesses Esau and ends up by, by, there everything is described in the most lavish detail imaginable and in other words Sefer Bresha has all types of food stories you have Yosef sitting down with his brothers and getting drunk and eating a whole big meal in other words there's no end of stories in a narrative where food becomes central especially when you want to have a Brit a Brit never takes place without some food even in Brit Ben Habitarim, Hashem eats the food, so to speak, when the fire passes between the pieces. So I think food is absolutely central in biblical narrative, if that's really what you're intending to talk about. I'm not sure. That, well, that is exactly right, except that your, your point is so good in, the, in that it obviously forces us to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to know what to not, the, the, the trouble being what to not include. Uh, indeed, one could give a whole year's worth course of food stories in Sefer Bereshit alone. You're, you're quite right. So I think what we're going to try and do is to try and not simply just look at individual instances, but rather to connect them into larger themes and see what, what's, what's, what will emerge. Um, but I mean, let's perhaps just go for your first e example. Uh, and, and there are many. The Torah could have chosen um, multiple ways in order to describe the first failure of humanity. Adam and Eve in the garden doesn't need to focus on food, but instead, as, as Yehudi rightly says, both the original command from all the trees of the garden you shall eat, from that tree you shall not, and the the, uh, I don't want to use the word fall, but the inability to, uh, to listen to that command focuses upon eating when it could have focused upon anything else. That's, that's very, a very interesting theme, and I, I think it's one we'll probably return to. Um, another one uh, which Yehudi mentions is that eating as the ceiling of a deal, of a covenant, of a brit, is the is shared between agreements between persons, people, and between humanity and God. Fascinating that that should be something which is shared. I see some other um, some other comments um, in in the chat. Food as temptation leading to downfall of Adam, Noah, Asab. Interesting. Great. So that's a Fantastic idea of food as a theme, food as temptation. Abraham telling Sarah to get food prepared for guests. Excellent. We will come to that 
in a second. Anybody else want to share any sort of what they think of as broad themes, not just individual stories, but something which can sort of track across uh, a larger area? I have a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Please, um, Steve. Well, first, I wanted to comment. I love your refrigerator and all the notes on there and everything else. <laughs> I, I'm in my kitchen, yeah. <laughs> but that actually is part of my point, because I don't think, you know, when the law was given at Mount Sinai, they could have envisioned what kosher was today with multiple sets of dishes and Passover dishes. And if you just go to the OK kosher website, you see the history of kosher. And I think, and then the diaspora, I think like geography affected foods. I'm just wondering, this might not be the place, but if you could just some historical context to how kosher and food evolved. I mean, there was no refrigeration for ages. There were spices and preservatives. Black kosher is a recent occurrence and all of that. So I think technology has made kosher, like more complicated in terms of all these laws and, and whatnot. And I'm just wondering, historically, if you can give some context to like, I can't imagine people used to have it's like multiple sets of dishes. Great question, Steve. I, I do think it is probably, I apologize for the background of sirens outside the window. That's, that's, that is uh, downtown Manhattan. Um, I uh, I think your question is, is fascinating and so important. I think it's probably a little bit beyond the scope of what I'm able to do today, which is going to focus primarily on stories. Um, I'm very happy to message offline if you like. I'll put my um, I'll put my my address, my email address in the in the chat uh, afterwards. I was reading a review of a book yesterday, which recently came out which um, you might find interesting, Steve. It's called um, Feasting and Fasting, um, uh, a social history of, of Jews and food, which has a, a significant section on that. I'll put a link to, to that as well in, um, in the chat. Um, okay. I want to I begin and uh, with, with sharing a few different themes. And we're going to move through them quite quickly, um, you know, you're, we're not going to do go too deep on either on any of them, but I would like. Um, I hope that they will give us um, a strong sense of um, of sort of the multiple ways in which food uh, comes to the fore. I don't. I'm trying to share it, but it doesn't look like I'm able to. So uh, I guess people are. Oh, there we go. Now I am screen sharing. Okay, people see my doc? Thank you. Um, lovely. So here's the first theme I, wanna, I want to talk about, and it was already partly mentioned, but I want to jump deep on it. Food seems to be the axis in the Tanakh, or the axis, the, the way in which sort of, a, a fundamental way in which we think about different forms of society. Whether a society is a kind, hospitable society, or a cruel, avaricious one, very much takes place through, through the notion of food. So let's look at a classic uh, text, one uh, which I think was already mentioned uh, in the chat and uh, by Yehudi. And uh, it's a beautiful text and one which is worth picking up on some nuance. Avraham is sitting in his tent, Belone Mamre, Kachomayom, in the heat of the day, he has recently had his, his brit milah, his circumcision. Lisa, 
is speaking to God. God appears to him. That's verse one. Verse two, Vayisa'enav raises his eyes. Vayar anashim nitzavim alav. There are three men standing there. Vayar, he sees them. Vayaratzlikratam Runs to greet them. Yishtachu alza. Bows down. Vayomar, and he says to them, Adoni, my masters. Imnam atzati chen be'enecher, if I found... Uh, pleasure, if it pleases you, please don't pass by. Take a little bit of uh, water, wash your legs, take some rest. Let me fetch a tiny little piece of bread. You can eat a little bit and then you can go on your way. Um, there's also, this is, you know, this is the origin uh, here of sort of uh, Jewish. Uh, Hosts, uh, you know, saying, oh, just a little bit, just a little bit. And then, of course, what happens? Verse 6, runs into Sarah in the tent, says, quick, quick, right? And they have a huge amount of food, which is ready to come out. He said, I'll give you a morsel of bread. And he ends up serving a multi-course feast, uh, three sayers of flour. We're going to make cakes. There's a calf as well. And the three passers-by, who, of course, turn out to be very significant people um, are treated to a great feast. I want to um, look a little bit more carefully at the opening verses. I think we're going to see something very interesting. What is the relationship between verse 1 and verse 2? If you see it, see, see this sort of a, a slight uh, bumpiness. On the one hand, God appears to Abraham, verse 1. On the other hand, there are three, three people, three men. Of course, we know from the continuation, these are not just average uh, guys. These are, in fact, angels. These are divine beings who are sent to impart the news that Sarah, Sarai will have a child, and of course uh, they are then to go on their way to Sodom, where they are going to bring about the city's destruction. So given their angelic divine quality, the Rashbam, Rabbi Shimon ben Meir, who is the grandson of the great commentator Rashi, says the way to read these verses is as follows, that really Verses one and two describe the same event. God appears to Abraham, verse one, in the form of these three men, verse two. In other words, they are not describing two separate visions, rather the divine appearing to Abraham appears in the guise of these three men. This is the divine message which is coming to Abraham. Verses one and two, describe the same and then he goes out and says please don't pass by please come in i want to share however the reading of his grandfather rashi now the rashbam may be closer to what we call pshat to the simple reading but there is going to be something extremely profound and beautiful i think in in Rashi's reading of it. Rashi 
wants to tell us that verses one and two describe two separate occurrences. God appears to Abraham. Abraham, being the person who discovers God, this great religious figure, is having a conversation with God, some sort of spiritual, mystical, religious experience. Who knows exactly what that consists of, but Abraham is speaking to God, verse one. Then, verse two, he sees people and he wants to host them. He wants to greet them. By the way, did anyone familiar, sorry to jump back 10 seconds. Anyone familiar with the Midrashic tradition that Rashi quotes, why is God appearing to him at this stage? Why is God coming to see Abraham in verse one? Yes, you heard him? Yeah, you Excellent, right? He's visiting the sick. Abraham has had his Brit Mila. Abraham is in the heat of the day. The third day, according to the Midrash, the most painful, Abraham is visited by Hashem to check he's all right. But then Abraham sees these people. The Sinav raises his eyes and he immediately wants to welcome them in, even though he's speaking to God. So now verse three, according to Rashi's reading, who is, now you have to ignore the English translation here, because the English translation goes with the Rashbam. But in Rashi's reading, the verse is now as follows. Please, my Lord, i.e. God, please God, says, ah. says Abraham. If it's okay with you, if you don't mind, please don't, don't go. Wait here for me while I go and get these People. Now, really, you have to see Rashi's language because it, it's just so beautiful um, and, and really, you know, rather, rather radical. Um, okay. People see where I'm highlighting? This word, Adoni, my masters, sorry, refer is Kadosh, it's holy. It refers to God. He's saying, Abraham says to God, please wait for me until I go and bring in the guests. That is a line to remember, right? You know, the, in, in Parashat Vayera, which is sort of the heart of so much of Jewish theology, you know, we, we talk of the Akedah and Abraham having to sort of... Um, subsume his, you know, his desire to, to love and look after his son. We talk of Abraham arguing with God at Sodom, right? And these are two very different modes. But actually, in this lovely reading of Rashi, it's an altogether different way of Abraham relating to God. In this moment, Abraham is saying to God, please, sorry, God, can you wait a moment? Can you wait on the side? If you don't mind, I've got something else to deal with. What is that something else? There are guests and, and I need to feed them. I need to run and make sure they're okay. Hashem waits for Abraham in this reading. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. Ab Hashem puts Abraham, Abraham puts Hashem on the side for a moment. Something more important is taking place. What is that? Sharing bread with people who are passing by. The reason I asked if anybody knows why Hashem is visiting Abraham was in order to set up uh, the following 
um, which is that in this little exchange, what the Midrash tells us is being taught is that from Hashem we learn Bikur Cholim, but from Avraham we learn Hachnasat Orchim. From God we learn visiting the sick. From Avraham we learn welcoming in guests. Now, there is a reason why this story is juxtaposed to the very next story. Once the angels have left, have imparted their news, their lovely news, but also their sad news about what's going to happen to Sodom, we read of them arriving in Sodom. Sodom. The angels come to Sodom. Lot, Yoshev, Peshal, Sodom. Lot, Abraham's nephew, who has relocated Sodom, is there. Lot, Lot seeing them, runs to get them, bows down to them. Similar to his uncle, who he has, of course, grown up with, he invites them in. He says, Please come to your servant's house, to me. Come in, have my hospitality. And of course, the residents of Sodom do not like this one little bit. Lot welcomes in the guests, but the residents of Sodom do not like this, do not like it one little bit. There is a tradition that Rashi quotes that uh, that, um, well, but we'll leave, leave Rashi for a moment. The predominant tradition and reading as to why it is that the residents of Sodom cannot abide Lot having taken them in, is that Sodom it seems to be the counter, the absolute opposite of what Abraham represents when it comes to Achnasat Ochim and the way in which guests are viewed, or rather the way in which the sharing of resources is viewed. A person or a society which has its land and has its food, how should they relate to those who are in need? I want to show two Midrashim, because um, the Midrashim, they're very similar to one another, but they, they pull out something different. Um, in the previous um, chapter, God has said he needs to go down and see. The cry of Sodom has arisen before me. And I want to go down and see. Eredna has the cry of Sodom. Is it really true? Here is one midrash. Rabbi Yehuda Omer. This is from Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. It was announced in Sodom. Anybody who has got some bread and gives it to a poor person in need, person hungry, will be burned. This is the punishment. We now hear about Pelitat Bitoshelot, one of Lot's daughters called Pelitit. Married to one of the uh, well-known people of the city. Seeing a poor man, a hungry man in the street. And she felt for him. Master, so what was it that she did? And she grew up in Lot's house, of course, who himself grew up in Abraham's house. She'd take out for him. She'd put into her basket. All of the food of the house. And give it to this poor man each day. She would feed him. 
Amru anshei Sodom. The people of Sodom said, Ha'ani hazeh, this poor man. Me'en chai, how is he able to carry on living? Uchshiyadu b'davar, when they found out that it was through Lot's daughter, Hotziu otalihisaref, they took her out to burn her. Amra, she cried out, Ribon kol ha'olamim, master of the universe, Aseh mishpati, look at my case, Vidini me'anshei Sodom. Look what they are doing to me. A cry went up to God. At that moment, God said, I will go down and see if in accordance with this young woman's cry, if, if is what she's saying is true, is how they are acting. If so, then I will turn Sodom up and down. I will turn it over. That's one Midrash. I want to show you another Midrash, which is very similar, but has got a fascinating nuance. It doesn't focus on Lot's daughter, but again, it focuses on, on two, two young women. That's not the one I wanted. I'm getting lost deep in Safaria. Um, fine. Not so important that I have it. In, in other, essentially, the, uh, the, the second Midrash says, even if I wanted to um, be merciful to Saddam, it is this cry of the oppressed, of those who are being abandoned by their society, which is too much for me, which I cannot take. And in fact, this is not only a midrashic, a later rabbinic commentary, it seems to be even internal to the Tanakh itself. Um, let me make this a little bit, uh, a little bit bigger. The text seems to be um, a little small here. Here is... Yechezkel, Ezekiel, looking back a thousand years or so to the time of Abraham, and he tells the Jewish people, the Jewish people who have been exiled from their land in the time of Yechezkel, what is it that happened to those who used to inhabit this land? The people of Sodom, for instance. Chayani, as I live, Nuum Hashem Elohim. Your sister, Sodom, what did she do? Only this was her sin. Gaon, her pride, her arrogance. She had so much bread. Untroubled tranquility. That she and her daughters have. But the poor, the hungry, she gave nothing to. This seems to set up, I would like to claim, and it sort of maybe it almost seems sort of so basic, but it sets up what I think is a core theme of the Tanakh, that the way in which we're able to see the difference between a society which the Torah wants us to strive towards and a society which the Torah wants us to absolutely reject is how that society relates to its abundance, to its food, and to those who are hungry, those who are in need. And perhaps we can actually pull out something. It's not simply is food shared, is food given to those who are hungry. It's not that there's a government feeding program. 
hospitality is not just about the provision of food to those who are hungry. It's, it's much more than that. It's opening up one's home as well. Abraham sort of is clearly the embodiment of that. Is anyone familiar with um, a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, which describes the character of Saddam, the attribute of Saddam? Does it ring a bell for anybody? The Mishnah in Avot says, Alba, alba midot ba'adam. There are four ways of <coughs> being in the world. And then it sets itself up with the difference between sheli and shelcha. What's the relationship between mine? What's the relationship between yours? And the first one is as follows. Ha'omel sheli sheli v'shelcha shelcha. One who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. Zumida benu. This is a very average attribute. This is neither particularly kind and altruistic, so it's not, so not particularly wicked. Just what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. But then it says, for yesh omrim, however, there are those who say, zumidat Sodom. This is the attribute of Sodom. And that's a very interesting Mishnah because it's not sort of like an elaborate midrashic, um, uh, exaggerated attack on the cruelty of the people of Sodom. In fact, it makes Sodom very similar to what is found amongst very many of us. What's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. Isn't just something which is average, that is the attribute of Sodom. If what you see with your own plenty is a big barrier which stops you from giving it and sharing it with others, that is the attribute of, of Sodom. Um, this develops in other ways as well. Um, here's a, we'll do this one very quickly. Um, nations that are not part of the Jewish people, of course, are given the option of converting, with the exception of two. Anyone remember which these two nations which are not able to become a part of the Jewish people? Yeah, Moab and Edom. Exactly, Moab and Edom. Share my screen again. Here we are in Devarim. Lo yavo amoni v'mo'avi pakahal Hashem. These two nations, Ammon and Moab, cannot come into the Jewish people. Gamdo asiri lo yavo lahem, even up to ten generations. Why? Al davar asher lo kidmu etchem balechem uvamayim. For the fact that they did not give you bread and water, when you left Egypt. Right? That, that cruelty, that refusal to provide even just a basic amount of food bars them from being a part of the Jewish people. It is, it is the ultimate anti-Avraham mode of behavior. Who is it in Tanakh who seems to buck this trend? who nevertheless joins the Jewish people from Ruth. one of these nations. Ruth. It is, of course, Ruth. Exactly right, Enid. Yeah. And it's not by chance, I would suggest and argue, that Ruth personifies this kindness, this giving, this sharing of food 
with her mother-in-law. It is her ability to completely invert the behavior of the society which she supposedly comes from, which is what grants her this, this entry into the Jewish people. Um, again, this is just a very quick overview, looking at lots of different themes. Um, one of my very favorite stories of Tanakh, but one which is not um, taught so much, is the story of uh, what's called the Witch of Endor, Balat Or. Uh, are people, people familiar with it? Mm -hmm. The very end of Shaul's life, King Saul, the first king, at the end of the first book of Samuel, Shmuel Aleph. Shmuel is terrified, terrified about the battle which he is to engage in the next day. And he goes to this sorceress who is one of the pagan peoples who is able to call up, uh, at least as she claims, call up from the dead um, those who have departed. And he goes to her and says, please call up Shmuel, the prophet Samuel, who was my guide back in previous days. We were not going to go into the whole story now and there's great discussion amongst the commentators whether or not it happens. It's absolutely fascinating. But what's amazing is that this pagan sorceress is presented as just being the, like, the loveliest, kindest person. If you can see these... Um, these verses, which I've put from it, you know, we don't need to read them too much in depth, but the parallel to Abraham, to the text which we've just seen, is, um, is very, very strong, right? The way she speaks to Shaul, this terrified Israelite king who, as a little bit of background, has persecuted her people, is exactly how Abraham speaks to those who are passing by. She says, please listen to me. Let me give you just a pat lechem, a little bit of bread. He says, oh, let me give you a little bit of bread. Just as Abraham then, having said he'll give a little amount, ends up providing a huge feast, a fattened calf, so too does she. She makes cakes as well. She gives him strength. He goes on in the nighttime, just as they do. Look at this wonderful quote from Josephus. Lovely when Josephus recounts the history of the Jews with anybody. Like, like to read it? Give me a little break from talking. Enid, you're on my screen. Would you like to? Okay, sure. Now it is only right to reflect upon the generosity of this woman. The king had forbidden her to use her art that allowed her to improve her circumstances. And yet she did not hold this against him and did not refuse him as a stranger. But she had compassion upon him and comforted him and exhorted him to do what he was greatly averse to and earnestly and with great humanity offered him the only calf she had even she had, even though she was a poor woman. Furthermore, she expected nothing in return for her kindness, nor hunted after any future favor from him, for she knew that he was to die. Whereas men are naturally eager to please those that bestow benefits upon them or are very ready to serve those from whom they may receive some advantage. It would be well therefore to imitate the example of this woman and to do kindness to all who are in need and to think that nothing is better nor more fitting for mankind than such a general beneficence that will also render God favorable and ready. And I've lost you. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. No, that's okay. But you just took <laughs> <a couple> words <laughs> left. Okay, back, back we are, back we are. Ready to bestow good things upon us. <laughs> um, that, that's a paragraph. I, I was quickly looking for my a recording of a class I gave on, on this story to put in the chat. I'll share it uh, afterwards. Thank you so much, Enid. Um, 
I spoke once to um, Moshe Halbertal, great, uh, wonderful man, professor of Jewish thought at Hebrew U and NYU, who wrote a book on uh, the book of Shmuel a few years ago. And uh, he said that she is the only, uh, the only character in the whole book of Shmuel who really sort of acts without any sort of political motivation. There's just an element of you know, sort of pure altruism in her. And again, if, you know, if, if Root is seen as bucking the, the, the character trait of the society she comes from, Moab, this is even more extreme of how, now this is a pagan sorceress who Shaul has persecuted her people and banned her magic and the Torah bans her magic. And yet the portrayal of her, because she acts like Abraham, is just so sympathetic. But this, this really sort of jumps out at us. So I, I'm, I'm steaming through all of these sources and we're gonna go through a whole bunch more, but I, I, I do wanna say, please jump in at any point, right? Uh, consider this a meal, right? We're all uh, talking and thinking and arguing together. If you've got thoughts and ideas uh, about the text that we're seeing or something occurs to you when you see it, please, please do share. Okay, so the one I've shown until now, I think is, don't want to oversee it, sort of pretty obvious. My guess is most of you have heard prior to today that Abraham is hospitable and we should try to emulate. We, we, we've done that. We've seen that. The following is, um, I think, quite a bit more nuanced, or not nuanced. It's, it's, it's harder to, it's not, not as obvious uh, to the eye, but once you see it, it's very, very clear. Eating is not something in Tanakh that only people do, that only living beings do. It is something that the land can do as well. And it can also do it in acts of violence. The land can devour or the land can puke out, can vomit out. I didn't see who said that. Somebody said? B.E., I see. What, what is your name, B.E.? Beth. Beth. Thank you, Beth. So here we're going to look at something very interesting. The Tanakh seems to have a, a sort of game, mishak, where what it is that the land does to its inhabitants who do not act as they should varies depending upon which land it is. The Jewish people are told in Vayikra, You will keep my... My, my statutes. Not to do all as, as the, the, the vile things that the previous inhabitants of this land have done. Those who lived in the land before you did them. They defiled the land. The land shall not spit you out. Well, really, it's actually, it's more, it's more, uh, more physical than that. It shall not puke you out, right? What will the land of, what does the land of Israel do to those who defile it with their behavior? The uh, Safari translation is spew you out. They, they puke you out. That's what the land of Israel does. Vomit. However, not so other lands. Slightly later on in Vayikra, Moshe tells 
the people. You will become lost in these foreign lands to which you are exiled. The land of your enemies shall devour you. Two deeply negative, problematic metaphors to do with eating of what the land is going to do to those who do not act as the land needs them to do, but very interestingly different from one another. Assimilation in foreign lands is compared to being devoured, to being completely absorbed. The land of Israel is sort of presented as a, as a sensitive body. It's unable to take certain foods, certain ways of behavior. Now look at this cool thing. What happens with the spies? The spies who, of course, bring back their report of the land of Israel. The people who went with them, the other spies said, We cannot go against the, this people, those who are already in the land. They're much too strong for us. They spoke ill of the land that they had toured. They said, The land which we went through, it's a land which devours its inhabitants. The people we saw in it, and shamey dot, people of, of great might. Can anyone see what's just happened? What have the spies just done? If we're to continue the, the wordplay. They just described um, they just described Eretz Israel as uh, as a devouring force opposed to a, a sensitive body. Right, exactly. They 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 attach to it the phrase that is associated with other lands. Bamidbar comes after, after Vayikra. The way in which um, I, I first learned this from my teacher, Dr. Yael Ziegler, her, her read of it, which has always stayed with me, I thought very compelling, is the spies are not making things up. But what this sort of um, verbal slip shows is that they are relating to the land of Israel in the way in, with the sort of the yardstick, the filter, which should apply to other lands, or which is to other lands. They are not granting it its sort of uniqueness, which is, of course, the whole point of, of the narrative. In Bamidbar, they are not get, having the faith that this will be, this will be different. So they're calling it Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha, a land which devours its inhabitants, gives the, gives the lie to that. Okay, any, any thoughts, comments, questions, disagreements? Sparking any, uh, any, any ideas yet? Yes, can you just, hello? Yes, can you just repeat the last part where um, it's not what they are saying is not true necessarily, but it's not presenting the positivity sure. you're saying? Sure, yeah, I mean, of, of course the, the, um, 
the challenge when we're doing something like this, we're rushing through lots of different narratives in order to try and see the themes is that um, these are all complex and fascinating stories in their own right, which have got um, uh, multiple levels in them. And if we're only describing them briefly, then we can oversimplify them. But the, the reading of the spies, which I was sort of suggesting was as follows, that one could read it in other ways and put different emphases, but what I was suggesting was as follows, that from a sort of political perspective, a political analysis, what the spies say make, say, make, can make, could be seen to make a lot of sense. We don't have the strength. We will not be able to achieve this. But in the context of the book of Bamidbar, it's not a, a failure of political analysis or military analysis. It's a failure of religious faith. It's a failure of the ability to understand that just as God has been with them from Egypt until now, so will he be with them as they enter into the land. And this phrase that they use, Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha, this verbal slip, can, is, can be read to imply, or can be read to sort of to, to, to reveal that they are not looking as, at the land of Israel as unique and different and under God's special guidance, but rather they are looking at it as one could look at any other country around that, that would be around them in which the normal rules of, um, of politics and military analysis apply. You know, I, I guess, you know, may, maybe I'm over overloading it. Uh, it just seems very interesting that the spies in what clearly is viewed by the Torah as a problematic speech apply to the land of Israel a phrase which is used about other lands. The land, I mean, sorry, um, M. Lewis. What, how do you like me to I call you Lewis? I call you M. Oh, Lewis, yeah. Lewis. Um, yeah, perhaps Lewis put it much sim more simply than I did. Perhaps there's something really important to the idea that the land of Israel is deeply sensitive to behaviors, um, which so much so that it will spit them out, whereas other lands devour uh, whatever it is that comes into their path. And perhaps I sh should stick with closer with that reading, with Lewis's reading, that they are they're thinking of it as any other land. They're thinking that it's something which can just take in anything and we will be devoured just as we would be devoured in other lands, rather than viewing it as a place which if you live in a certain way and you, you build a certain sort of moral religious society, you will stay in it. And if you don't, that is what will get you um, vomited out from it. Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Anyone else? Let's carry on then for a sec um, and look at some look at some other things. Um, we are. Um, let me share the screen again. A further theme, <coughs> which seems to definitely be pronounced, is that um, in the Tanakh, um, food can quite frequently. Uh, be a, a sort of a foil or seem to be 
uh, a reference to sex and sexuality. Perhaps there's no better place uh, to see this than in the story of Yosef in Potiphar's house. Chapter 39 of Bereshit. For Yosef, who rad Mitzrayma, taken down to Egypt, he can Potiphar, That's cool, right? Chief, Chief Steward, Sar Hatabachad, head of the kitchens, Ish Mitzri, Miyad his master, Potiphar, sees this. Everything he touches, Matzliach, he's successful with. Verse 4, V'yimtza Yosef chen be'enav. Yosef finds favor in his master's eyes, puts him in charge of the whole house. Kol yeshlo, everything he had, natan be'yado. And from that moment that he puts him in charge of the house, V'yivarech Hashem et bet ha-mitzri b'glal Yosef. God blesses the Egyptians house, everything he had in the house, in the field. Verse 6, he leaves everything that he has in the hands of Yosef. Everything except for the bread that he eats. And Yosef was very beautiful. Why not the bread? Why is the bread not included in everything that he puts him in charge of? So you could suggest a couple of things. Anyone want to make a suggestion? Yeah, I'll Why make is he a suggestion. In charge of the bread. Yes. Okay. It may be because Kilo Yuchun Hamitrim Leho in her Ibrim Lechem, he toevahi limitrive. That is that is excellent. Later on, we will hear that the Egyptians will not eat their bread with others. And any, I guess, to take that a step further, um, bread emerges from ancient Egypt. Probably the greatest contribution that. Egypt gave to the world was the discovery of, of bread. I mean, this is an important topic in archaeology. It's also an important topic in Tanakh. What Bereshit seems to tell us is that the bread was essential to Egyptian identity and was not something that could be shared with outsiders. That's a, a very good read of why he would not have given him um, the bread. Yosef, for all of his qualities, is nevertheless an outsider. By the way, as, a, as an aside, this must have something to do with chametz and matzah on Pesach, right? Without a shadow of a doubt, right? That the defining character of Pesach, of leaving Egypt, being this denial of bread, bread is the ultimate symbol of what ancient Egypt was. Without a doubt, that is correct. Another potential suggestion is that um, it's not just that Potiphar is Egyptian, he's also a foodie, right? Sarhatabachim, right? He's head of the kitchens, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'll share with you. I do, uh, there are very, very few people I allow to make my coffee. 
like uh, you know and, and tea and don't know don't, don't even get started on tea i mean i don't think you know, <laughs> unless you're from unless you're from the uk i would i would not trust any of you to to make me a cup of tea don't take it the wrong way nothing offensive i just know that i would not uh, know that uh, given all the absence that I've heard so far, I don't think any of you actually know what a cup of tea is. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we, we all have our things. So Potiphar being, you know, Sarhatabachim, okay, you know, Yosef's excellent at running the house economy, Yosef's excellent at running this. Okay. However, there is this other reading, and it's a reading of Rash. Right. Sorry, did somebody want to? His wife. His wife, exactly, right? Let's look at... Rashi, just very short, but it's nice to uh, nice to have it up. Ki im halechem, except for the bread. He ishto, in other words, his wife. Ela shidiber halashon belashon nekia. A euphemism is used. Now, before you say that is just midrashic craziness, I'm not so sure. He's successful. He puts him in charge of everything. Ki im halechem, except for the bread. And then the very next words, Vayihi Yosef yafeto Yosef is beautiful. Yosef sees himself as beautiful. And the very next verse, Vayihi she raises her eyes with Tovam and she says, Shichva imi. Bread, his wife, and this is actually, I should say, just the tip of, of the iceberg. Um, the, 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 scholar, the biblical scholar James Kugel has got um, a whole book about the Midrashim of Yosef in Potiphar's house, called In Potiphar's House. Um, one whole chapter is dedicated to food-related Midrashim. Um, there is one wonderful one, I'm afraid I didn't get it up, where, um, you know, there's a phrase a little bit later on in the verses, this happens every day. Yosef is so beautiful. And Potiphar's wife, she's like tortured by this. Like, it's like, she can't, like, it, it's, it's not simply attraction. Like, she is, she's just tortured by Yosef's beauty. And the women around her, the neighbors say, you know, really, you should, this isn't how you should be, how you should be acting. And so the Midrash describes her inviting them all over one day. And she gives each one of them an apple in one hand, and she gives each one of them a sharp knife to cut the apple. And then she sort of sends a hint to one of the servants, and Yosef walks past all of the Egyptian women. And as she does that, as he walks past, all of their mouths drop open, and they all slice their hands, cut their hands uh, with, the, with the sharp knives and uh, lacerate uh, themselves. I mean, just these... <laughs> the, food into sort of attraction, physicality, um, sexual uh, uh, attraction is, is just it's so rich in these. Uh, uh, Rabbi? Rashi's Kiyamalek is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, Yehudi. Okay, I'm just sorry, because I, I clicked the raise hand button, but I'm not sure you see it. Sorry, I, pardon me, I, I did see it. It was just uh, getting engaged, engrossed in my cutting the apple, Midrash. Yes. Okay. Sarataba'chim might be chief executioner, not chief kitchen steward. Basically, in the in the Muzardan from Babel is called Rab Tabachim, and I don't think he's made his name as a kitchen steward. It's quite clear that he's a general and he executes people. And in, in, in the Gilak Echa, it says Tabachta Velochamalta. In other words, that clearly means you killed us without mercy. And, and not only that, 
Sarkov, when Yosef is thrown in jail, the jail is just an annex of Potiphar's house. Don't you see? Where is he? He's in Beisartavachim. In other words, all the Potiphar is doing with Yosef is taking him from one wing of the house and putting him in another wing of the house. The back part of the house is the execution, like the west wing and the east wing of the White House. That's what this is. He's not getting rid of Yosef. He knows his wife is making up the whole story. It's not that he doesn't burn, but he does. He can't. You know, he has to get rid of Yosef for Sean Byers. So he puts it in a different part of the house, and he has Yosef continue to do the things he was doing before, chief administrator of wherever he happens to be assigned, and eventually becomes chief administrator of Egypt. But I don't think that Poti Farsaratabachim means chief kitchen, even though it sure takes that. Which I think is using Yecheskel, the word Matbeach, as, in other words, what I'm saying is that clearly means we're going to kill our enemies. It doesn't mean we're going to cook them or roast them. Matbeach means we're going to kill them. And the Buzardan is certainly not a chef. You know, that's not and I agree with you about the Buzardan. I think with Potiphar, we can, you can have it either way. You could view him as an executioner, but you don't get... I think, you know, right now, I'm sitting in my kitchen. Mitbach, uh, Ishtabach. There's a fantastic Kurdish restaurant in uh, Machane Yehuda. Where that means, and of course, what does it mean here? Um, Let him finish. Okay, that's the point. In other words, it can mean to slaughter, but it can also mean to kill. And basically, Matbeach and Mitbach are the same word, but the bottom line is the root Tevach. Uh, and it, we have a clear example of Tanakh of a rap Tavachin, who clearly has not, nothing to do with it. Okay. Okay, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to. Uh, I, I agree with it as a plausible reading, but I don't think it's the, it's the only reading. And many of the Midrashim, which are fascinated in the connection between food and the, the set, I mean, if, if I'm to push it even further, if you, uh, if you want me to sort of go in, in the opposite, uh, in, in the opposite direction, the, uh, um, just to sort of see how, how much the Midrashim have a lot of fun with it, Potiphar is described as Saris Pavo, right? Saris, meaning a eunuch. Uh, in other words, he is not able to uh, provide much in the way of sexual intimacy for his wife. Um, there are other Midrashim which then spin off about this, him being himself attracted to uh, Yosef. Um, all I wanted to do in this was just to show how this is one instant, and there are a number of others elsewhere, where food and sexuality really come together. And of course, what is the other possible one one could suggest? And to really go deep on this is beyond the amount of time we have. But what would be the other, other possible example where sort of food and food is, is, is really essentially a hint at sexuality? Exactly, exactly. Right, as soon as they've eaten from the tree, they realize they are naked. What do they know? They ate from the Eitzadat. What do they know? Exactly. So, God, the Garden of Eden can certainly be viewed, viewed with that in mind. Um, let's uh, let's do one other quick one. Now, the following one. It's going to seem to be sort of like quite a um, quite a minor idea, but it seems to really be um, 
many, many instances across Tanakh, we have the following. And I'm searching for uh, a particular phrase to catch it. Um, perhaps you can help me with it. What seems to occur at quite a number of points is after people have committed an act, which is a heinous act, a, a real crime, something which should lead to a real sort of cheshbon uh, nefesh, um, searching within oneself, that doesn't take place. And instead the opposite happens, which is they sit down and have a good meal. Yeah, that's the one. And then we have time. You heard he, not everybody might be jumping as fast as you are. So so let's okay, let's, let's do one at a time. Okay. They throw Yosef into a pit. Yosef and his brothers. Let me just quickly uh, share the screen. Uh, they've thrown Yosef into the pit, the brothers. They are hearing his cries, we later learn. But instead, what is it that they do after having thrown him in the pit? Verse 25. They sit, they eat bread, they raise their eyes, and they see the caravan, which they are going to sell him into slavery into. What is it that they do once they have thrown their brother into the pit? They sit down and have a meal. Here is another one. Jumping a long way away in Tanakh, chapter three of Megillat Esther. Haman, whose fortunes have been raised, comes to Ahasuerus after feeling humiliated by Mordechai's refusal to bow down to him, says to Ahasuerus, There is this people scattered amongst the nations in all of your kingdoms, they have a different religion. They do not do as you do. If it's good in your eyes, let the king write to annihilate them. Here is money for it. Achashverosh doesn't ask another word. He gives his ring, his signet for it. It's written out. It is sent throughout the empire, transcribed for everybody. Verse 15, the final verse. The decree was proclaimed in Shushan. The king and Haman sit and drink, and Shushan is confounded. In other words, basically identical, really, to Yosef and his brothers, and there are many parallels between the story of Yosef and Megillat. Esther. One of those parallels is after essentially consigning a person to death or slavery is done, the, the way of exemplifying this terribly unfeeling response is to sit down and have a feast. If this is so, and there are other examples as well, Yehu with his example. Yes, possibly with Shlomo too. I want to show the following one, which is a strange story, and it's not a crime in the same way. Here we are now in Shemot, and this is after or the end of the end of Parshat uh, Parshat Mishpatim. Let's let's sort of get a sense of, of what's happening here. It's a complicated a complicated story. 
Um, Moshe, I'll, I'll go to the beginning of, of the chapter. Moshe is told to go up to up to Harasinai. Baharon, the Nadav, Avihu, to go also with Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu. Mizikne Israel, uh, sorry, the Shivim Mizikne Israel, and 70 of the elders. Now they're to go to a certain point, and to bow down from the distance. After that, Benigash Moshe. Levador el Hashem. Moshe alone is supposed to go up. But those who come with him will remain where they are. The people themselves won't go up at all. So there are three levels, right? There's the people down at the base of the mountain. There is Moshe, Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, and 70 elders who go part way up. And then just Moshe who goes up all the way himself. Okay? The next verse is described Moshe telling this to the people. They have Moshe There are offerings. And then the story sort of picks up again in verse 9. Vayaal Moshe Vaharon, Nadav Avihu, Vishivim Mizikne Israel. Okay, so this is part one, right? This is the first group leaving the people of the bottom mountain going part way up. That's verse 9. Moshe. Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, 70 elders. And now watch what happens. The 70, sorry, Nadav and Avihu disappear from the story. Let's rejoin at verse 13. We're going to come back to the verses in between. But Nadav and Avihu disappear. Instead, two new people emerge. Vayakom Moshe, Moshe gets up. The Yehoshua Meshavto, Yehoshua his attendant, the Ya'al Moshe El Har Elohim, and Moshe goes up. But Hezekinim Amar, and he says to the elders, Shvu Lanu Beze, say here, Adasher Nashuv Alechem until we return to you. Behine Aharon Vachur Imachem, and Aharon and Hu will be with you. If you've got any questions, speak to them. So this is very complex, what's happening. We've got the people there at the bottom of the mountain. We've got the 70 elders who are part way up the mountain. We've got Aharon who is to be with them. Moshe is to go up alone. But then Nadav and Avihu, who were at the, in the story prominently at first, have disappeared and been replaced by Yehoshua and Paul. What's happened? Well, it's complex, but it seems to have something to do with what happens in the middle. After Moshe, we're now in verse 10, after Moshe and Aharon and Nadav and Avihu go up the first, first way, they see the God of Israel, they have this amazing vision of God, like Sapphire. They have this vision of the divine, hard to describe, of course, like the very sky for purity, and now look what happens. Strange verse, verse 11. But against this, this is a rare word, translated as leaders, 
against the leaders of the Israelites, God did not send his hand. Shalach Yador meaning to punish. God did not punish these leaders. They saw God. And they ate and they drank. Strange and cryptic, right? This is the suggestion of my teacher, Rav Amnon Hazak, appears in this book, which came out a good number of years ago now, the Kudat Pticha, recently released in English, uh, called Parsha Point, I think. He brought our attention to Rashi's comment. Let's look at Rashi. The El Atzile, the leaders, Hem Nadav Avihu Bahaskenim. This is Nadav and Avihu and the elders. Lo shalach yado, he didn't send his hand against them. Michlal implying, shahayuru oyim lishtaleach bahem yad, they were deserving of some punishment. V'yechazuet Elohim, they saw God. Hayu mistaklimbo, they looked at God. Belev gas, mitoch achila v'shtia, with a sort of arrogance or an over-intimacy, like eating and drinking. And I hope you're beginning to see how this is sort of connected to the Achashverosh Haman and Yosef's brothers. The, the Tanakh seems to have this play of, and it's complex, but it, it's really worth pulling out. And you know, I'd love to hear people's thoughts. The Tanakh seems to have this play of where eating and drinking after something very significant has happened is a way of showing that you really don't get the significance of what has taken place. You can commit a whole people to annihilation. You can sell a brother into slavery. And the way in which you really show either your heartlessness or your inability to really understand what you should be thinking about is you eat and you drink. And here you have, you know, it's, it's hard for us to find the words to describe it, but people encountering the divine going up Har Sinai and they eat and they, they drink. Why does God not punish them? Perhaps because this is part of a celebratory atmosphere. But of course, this will link up to the story in Vayikra of Nadav and Avihu, who offer, uh, uh, bring forth an offering that they were not commanded. And this sort of desire to come close to God, this over-intimacy perhaps, which eventually leads to their downfall is in some way sort of intimated and hinted at here. And so in this reading, food and drink is, I mean, I'd be happy if somebody would like to sort of give me the words for it because you know, I don't exactly have it down. Food and please, uh, this open invitation to anyone. Food and drink is a way of not getting it. Not getting the point. What, sorry, Enid, what, 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 were, you, what were your thoughts? No, I, I just said I'm not getting the point. I'm you, not you... getting the point of, of an over sense of over intimacy or, or a lack of sort of kavod of sort of you know, the, the honor due to, to the moment. Um, and perhaps I mean, we sort of can have that image, you know, someone just like chomping on a bar as they. It's like the trivialization. It's Thank like you. a trivialization of the experience. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. V very, and very well said. 
also there's a time and place where we should be celebrating and using food and there's a time to refrain from it. And that's a lot of our culture. Absolutely, absolutely. Elizabeth, if I can, I think you take me to the final piece, which we'll do today. Right. Um, <laughs> which is one chapter, uh, and we're gonna go through it quite quickly, but one chapter which seems to be really the richest chapter that there is for thinking about both the possibilities but also the potential dangers of what eating represents. So important, in fact, is this chapter that all of Drisha's Winter's Man is, in fact, named after um, a verse from uh, this chapter. This is chapter eight of Tavari. Moshe telling the people, you've come this far. Verse two. You remember the whole way. Which God has led you these 40 years in the desert. To test you. To know which is in your heart. It was hard for you. You were hungry. God fed you the man. What were you to learn from this food which fell every day? Which you had never seen before, no one before you had seen it. What was its purpose? In order to let you know that not by bread alone does man live. The, the excellent artisan bakery and the farmer's market that we go to every Sunday is called Bread Alone, right? It's a one way of reading uh, this verse. Excellent uh, upstate New York bakery. Um, but its origin is, of course, in this verse. Not through bread alone does a person live. Rather, what that which comes from God's mouth does, should a person live through. This, this bread, this daily bread in the wilderness, showing the origins of it and of of our sustenance, and that we cannot survive through bread alone. This takes on a new element now, as we are about to go into a land where there is not manna, but rather one which is an abundance of, of food. God is bringing you into a land, verse 7, Tova, Eretz Nachale Mayim, filled with streams, Eretz Chita Useora, Gefem Te'ena, Verimon, Eretz Zechemu Dubash, all of the wonderful produce and foods of the land of Israel. Here is a critical phrase you're to, uh, to eat. Uh, verse 17. You should, sorry, you should not forget this desert experience of being given the man. But amalta, so that you shall not say to yourselves, because you will say to yourselves if you forget it, kochi v'otsem yadi asali etachayil hazeh. My power, the strength of my hand, did this for me. These, I mean, some of the these are some of the most memorable phrases of the Tanakh for how to think about food and its spiritual dangers. On the one hand, a person might think, a person can live through bread alone. Furthermore, and especially in an agrarian society where food and produce is so much linked to power. Producing your own food can lead you to say, yadi 
Asali, my own power, the strength of my hand has given me all of this. I am my ultimate master. There is no room for understanding God's role in everything. But perhaps what's so fascinating is that embedded within this chapter is also the great potential of food. To, to grow one's own crops, that the land of Israel should be settled as this bountiful land. And verse 10, and here is where we'll finish because it's so important. You shall eat, you shall be satisfied, you shall make a blessing. Bless Hashem, your God. And I want to emphasize the following point. This is, looked at with halachic glasses, the source for Birkat Hamazon. The blessing said after meals, This is what we would call the Oraita. It is a Torah level commandment. This is a Torah source for it. Perhaps we think of the most basic way of relating to God, the most obviously Jewish way of relating to God, as being this, the Siddur, the prayer book, tefillah, prayer, daily prayer. However, with the lone exception of Maimonides, the Rambam, who is of course a very notable exception, but he is alone, there is not a single one of the great medieval authorities who think that the idea of praying daily is a biblical commandment. They all, with the exception of Maimonides, think that it's a later rabbinic uh, injunction idea to pray every day. And yet, absolutely all of them would agree, they could not disagree, that the blessing after a meal, after food, is biblical in origin, this verse right here in front of us, you shall eat, you shall be satisfied, you shall make a blessing. Rav Soloveitchik would put it very simply, in the eyes of the Torah, food is a more natural bridge between people and God, a more natural way of relating to God, of of, uh, of giving voice to our spiritual, our spiritual needs than, than prayer is. And that, I think, is something which is not, does not seem so obvious to us today, but in the Tanakh is so, sort of, so deeply and powerfully rooted. So with that, we'll finish. We've looked at a lot of different themes uh, today. Sarah has saved the source sheet. Um, I think it's fair to say there is not one overall overarching theme which connects all instances of food and Tanakh. Rather, it brings together many different elements. What we will do next time on Thursday will be much less of sort of getting a, a, a panoply, uh, panoramic view. And instead, we're going to focus on two stories, which we are going to look at in depth in which food plays fascinating, significant roles in what it gives to the story. Um, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to uh, take some out. Oh, I see some things in the chat. Barbara, I 
nice, very nice point about uh, uh, this sort of God, the, the food coming from God is sort of a harking back to Bereshit on uh, God breathing uh, life into us. That's that's lovely. Yes, Yehudi. I notice you disregard the English translation that you're putting in front of us. I'm not exactly sure why you're doing that. But, I mean, I don't think Uberachta means to bless. It means to give thanks. Essentially, you just, you know, that's what the word means in Tanakh, when it applies to a human being's relationship with Hashem. In other words, you know, when they take this to mean Birchat zone and they say that's Torah. Well, that might be what they want to make you believe, but that's not what the verse is saying. What the verse is saying is exactly what the English translation has in front of you. When somebody says, Baruch Hashem, they mean, thank God, just like we do today. If you ask somebody how you're feeling, you say, Baruch Hashem, which means, thank God. Okay? I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I realize this is a source text for Birchat HaMazon, but according to the plain Pashtun Pshat, it has nothing to do with some written out Nusach that the rabbis came up with and then proceeded to say that Nusach is what this Pasuk is talking about. In other words, that in itself is a drush. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't see... Uh much of a contradiction, a, a bracha is a way of thanking God. Meaning when Chazal say this is the source for, uh, for Birkat Tamazon, what they mean is the Torah says that once you have eaten, you give thanks to God. It is simply the, no the halachic encasing, a bracha in this sense is the halachic encasing of giving thanks. So there's not really a contradiction between your saying that the word bracha means to give thanks. And this, my, my point is, uh, is simply to show that the way in which uh, Jewish practice, of course, you know, emerging from the Tanakh, views food as a way of, uh, of connecting deeply to God. And that's the case whether you translate the verse as you shall eat, be satisfied and give thanks to God, or whether you view it as you shall eat, um, be satisfied and make a blessing to God. Either way, it's not too much it's of a commandment. Difference. It's a prediction. You get where I'm going with this? It's not a commandment, it's a prediction. It's like, right. that's not a commandment, that's a prediction. Okay? Even Abraham Ibn Ezra and Rashi argue about that. In other words, it simply means when you sit and eat your food from the land I'm giving But either way, you, you e either way, Yehudi, the point that I was trying to make is that in the eyes of both Tanakh and the way in which Chazal view it, and I'm, I'm not so interested in the differences, what I'm interested in what they share in common is that food is the, the opportunity to not be something which is simply dangerous or simply materialistic as, as it's described as being elsewhere, but actually as being the possibility for um, a, a, a wholesome uh, relationship with God. I, I do realize now it's 2.30, so I don't want to keep people um, behind. I've enjoyed this very much and yeah. uh, look forward to seeing people again on, on Thursday. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, everyone. I do just want to give a quick plug to our next session, which is tonight at 8 p.m. It is called Scarcity and Plenty in America, the Face of Hunger and Food Policy, which is with Mazon, the Jewish Response to Hunger. 
Um, you can find out more information about this class and all of our other Winters Mon programming at www.drisha.org slash classes. So thank you again, Rabbi Wolfson, for learning with us today. It was my pleasure to sit in on it. Thank you. Thank you.